0: A triplet is what you get when you cram three of a given note, say an eighth note or a quarter note, into the length of time it'd normally take to play two. It's also an automatopoetic musical term, so if you need to remember what a triplet sounds like, well, you can just say triplet. Triplet. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about songs with lots of triplets, songs with no triplets, and songs that are built entirely out of triplets. Strong Songs is a one-man production. I make this entire show all by myself. It takes a lot of work, and I'm able to do that thanks to the support of my wonderful listeners. If you would like to learn how to help me make episodes like the one you're about to listen to, go to patreon.com slash songs. On this episode we're going to be talking about a widely requested band with a number of very well known hits, though this isn't actually one of their best known songs. It is one of my favorites though, dense with rich harmony and one of the most iconic grooves ever recorded, so let's cut the preamble, bring up the horns, and do this thing. A studio musician is an almost mythological figure in the history of recorded music, like the popular conception of a knight-errant or a ronin samurai going from town to town looking for grooves to lay down or beautiful solos to play to better enhance the work of established bands and groups of people that play together. And there's something to that mythologizing, there's something special about a musician who is so very good at their instrument or at singing at their stock and trade that they can go around and just kind of plug themselves into a band or plug themselves into a recording session and be whatever the producer needs them to be. As the recording industry matured through the 1960s, groups of studio musicians rose to prominence from The Wrecking Crew, which I talked about a lot on last year's episode about the Beach Boys, God Only Knows, to bands like the Muscle Shoals Band or the Stax Records Band, sort of how bands for studios the funk brothers are another great example bands made up of musicians who are in the same area as the studio could just show up read down the chart get the job done and play really well day in and day out consistently and their skill set lent itself to the environment of the recording studio, which was beginning to take on a different creative energy and a whole different creative identity than the stage. I've talked a lot in past episodes about the dramatic improvements in recording technology that occurred from the late 60s through to the late 1970s and into the 1980s. And those improvements in technology were the things that made it possible for some musical artists to focus their time in the studio on the studio recording as its own standalone form. and in that that world where musicians are making recordings just for the recording where anything is possible and you can hire whole orchestras of people to fill in spaces and overdub tracks and create musical soundscapes that go way beyond whatever your four or five piece band might be capable of doing on stage in that world the studio musician is king <laughs> Now, I want to tell you about a band from the 1970s. This is a band that released their first album in 1972, and then over the course of the decade underwent a dramatic change in their style, their sound, and their approach to recording albums. Over eight years, from 1972 to 1980, the founding two band members' obsession with precision and perfection would cause them to gradually move away from their original band members and diversify their lineup with some of the best studio musicians in the world. That relentless pursuit of perfection would culminate in 1980 with an album almost entirely performed by studio musicians, and the resulting collection of songs was fascinatingly aloof, harmonically dense, and man did it groove. Anchored by a killer drum performance that would echo for decades to follow, along with a world class rhythm section and a killer horn section, edited, mixed, and mastered to an at times uncanny sheen. This song is in many ways an apotheosis of a certain kind of meticulous, uncommonly focused studio recording style. But okay, I've built it up enough, and you've probably already looked at the title of this episode, so you know that we're finally going to be talking about the great Steely Dan.
1: Babylon
0: sister, shake it! Specifically, their purdy powered 1980 groove locomotive, Babylon Sisters.
1: Babylon Sisters.
0: A song that demonstrates that groove is really about restraint.
2: So fine, so young.
0: Babylon Sisters is one of my very favorite Steely Dan songs in part because of how well it represents the end point of their long and winding road through the 70s. So I have listened to a lot of Steely Dan over the past couple of weeks. I've listened to every one of their albums, and I went in order, which is actually kind of the reverse of how I discovered them. The first time that I heard them, I was a wee lad in music school, and I heard their 2000 album, Two Against Nature, which was described at the time as a triumphant return of Steely Dan after 20 years away from the studio.
2: Well, i kicked around a lot since high school. I've a lot of-
0: was back home again in indiana on break and this song came on the radio uh this song is called cousin dupree it's from two against nature and i listened to the entire song in the car i remember parking and just listening to it thinking what band is this i love this this groove this song is so funny and grooves so hard So that was my introduction to Steely Dan. I listened to a lot of Two Against Nature. It featured Chris Potter, one of my very favorite jazz saxophone players playing some killer solos, great band, was really into it. And then I kind of gradually discovered that Steely Dan didn't always sound like that. So it's been fun over these last few weeks to go back through their discography and listen to their sound as it changed over the course of the 1970s. Steely Dan revolves around two musical minds, keyboardist, vocalist, Donald Fagan, and guitarist, bassist, Walter Becker. Those two write all the music. They're the kind of driving force of the band, and there's this whole collection of musicians and engineers and producers that sort of exists around them and becomes the sort of greater Steely Dan cinematic universe. Listening to all of their albums gives you a really good sense of how that universe grew and developed over the course of the decade. You start in 1972 with Can't Buy a Thrill. That features one of their best-known songs, Reelin' in the Years, which sounds pretty different than anything on, say, Gaucho.
2: Are you reelin' in the years? Throwing away the time
0: At that time, they were a set band, they had a set personnel, musicians like Jeff Skunk Baxter, he was playing guitar and really defined a lot of that early sound, and David Palmer was singing with them. Um, Donald Fagan would eventually become the lead singer and one of the sort of defining sonic elements of Steely Dan, but he wasn't the lead singer at the very beginning, or he wasn't the lead singer all the time. They released an album every two years, actually sometimes every year, throughout the 1970s and 74. They released Pretzel Logic, that featured another one of their huge hits, a slightly more jazz-inflected tune, Ricky, don't lose that number.
2: Ricky, don't lose that number.
0: You can feel their sound kind of crystallizing over this period as they move away from those core members and start adding more studio musicians, more jazz musicians to the mix. One musician that they added was future Toto drummer Jeff Porcaro, who played on a bunch of their albums in the 1970s. He was the drummer on Black Friday, a tune that I really like from 1975's Katie Lied, that is not actually about holiday retail. Those velvety backup vocals on Black Friday were provided by the great Michael McDonald, another musician who got his start with Steely Dan. He went on to sing with the Doobie Brothers, had a great solo career as a vocalist, is well known for his beautiful upper register. You can hear his backup vocals also on 1977's Peg. peg was a hit single on 1977's asia which is probably pound for pound my favorite steely dan album it's a fantastic album it was their boldest excursion into the world of jazz the title track asia is the second track on the album is basically a prog track it features a famous drum solo from steve gadd who was joined actually by wayne shorter the jazz sax legend wayne shorter who i wouldn't actually call a studio musician wayne shorter transcends that title he was a jazz star in his own right and they managed to get him to play the solo on the title track of asia I love that stick click. Apparently, the stick click when his drumsticks click together in the middle of the solo is a whole thing for drummers. The first time I heard this, I just remember thinking, did I just hear a stick click? And then I was talking to a drummer buddy of mine, he's like, oh man, the stick click in that solo is a whole thing. Goes to show, just because someone might call it a mistake doesn't mean you shouldn't leave it in the recording. So three years after Asia, Steely Dan made Gaucho. Gaucho was the last album they made before they broke up, and for 20 years, Steely Dan didn't make any records. And the remarkable thing is they came back with Two Against Nature, which, like I mentioned, is another one of my favorite albums of theirs, and it was like no time passed. It feels actually right along the continuum from Asia to Gaucho to Two Against Nature. So I really do recommend listening to the entire Steely Dan discography from Can't Buy a Thrill in 1972 through to Gaucho in 1980, then across that 20-year gap to Two Against Nature in 2000 and beyond. And as you do so, bear in mind that Steely Dan's sound, this refined studio sound that they were getting, it wasn't just the work of Fagin and Becker, and it wasn't just the work of the musicians they were working with. It was also the work of a group of very skilled recording engineers and mix engineers who made the music sound the way that it does. This is when that shift was happening to studio music and Steely Dan was at the vanguard of that they were making these studio albums they eventually stopped playing live and just focused on the studio and engineers are such an important part of making studio music the brilliant Roger Nichols worked with Steely Dan on a lot of stuff he was a really inventive and incredible audio engineer and was central to how they got the sounds that they got and how they got the instruments to sound the way that they did Elliot Shiner was also an engineer on a number of Steely Dan tracks and on a bunch of other records too and he mixed Gaucho and got that record sounding amazing. And then of course their producer Gary Katz was also a huge part of Steely Dan's sound. Gary Katz worked famously with Steely Dan throughout their entire run and was an essential part of the band even though he didn't play any instruments on the actual albums. So you can imagine all of these extremely talented people orbiting Becker and Fagan and creating this increasingly refined sound that reached the apex of its refineness in 1987 Gaucho. So let's get into it. Babylon Sisters is the opening track off of Gaucho, and it actually doesn't feature Walter Becker on anything. He's not playing guitar or bass. He just co-wrote, co-arranged the song with Donald Fagan, who's only providing lead vocals. The rest of the band is made up of studio musicians who were playing to Fagan and Becker's meticulous musical specifications. Those musicians are Don Grolnick on keys, Steve Kahn on guitar, Chuck Rainey on bass, Crusher Bennett on percussion, and the great Bernard Purdy on drums.
2: Drive west on sunset to the sea. Turn that jungle music down. Just until we're out of town.
0: There's also a great horn section and a killin' group of backup vocalists on this track. We'll talk about them a little bit later when we get to them, but I want to start with that groove, because the rhythm section is where this song is at, and Bernard Purdy's drum feel on this song is the stuff of drumming legend. So I'm going to actually move us through this intro. This song goes for 45 seconds before anything really happens. I mean, that's not exactly true, right? The groove is happening, the band is cooking, the horns come in. There's stuff that happens, but Fagin's vocals come in 45 seconds into this song. And this intro is interesting primarily in that it immediately sets the groundwork for this song's overall approach to harmony and rhythm. Babylon Sisters is in D minor, technically, but it is all over the place harmonically. This is the most harmonically complex song I've ever talked about on Strong Songs. It's actually not even close. And while I'm not going to go through every single chord extension on every chord for you here, just know that it is really complicated, and I want to convey that just by looking at this intro uh, really quickly, just going through all of the chords. It starts on an F-sharp chord, and it ends, finally, on a B-flat minor 7 chord to start the verse. But the route from F-sharp to B-flat minor... ...is circuitous. It goes a bunch of different places and it never actually repeats itself. Each phrase is a little bit different. So before we pick apart the groove, let's just go through this intro and I'm just going to call out the chords. I'm not going to say all the chord extensions, mostly just focus on the roots, but just try to hear it and pay attention to how it's moving. It never really resolves or lands where it's going. Even when it lands on the verse and Fagin begins singing, it feels like a new beginning, but it doesn't ever really feel like it ended, if that makes any sense. We're in F sharp, we're in B, then we're on E, then E goes to E flat, then we're back on F sharp, then we go all the way back to E, and then up to E flat again, then E flat goes to B flat. It's just this constantly shifting thing that doesn't feel super dramatic as you're listening to it, because the groove is just cooking, and it's this really steady, killer groove, and that's kind of this song's M.O. The groove just cooks along, Bernard Purdy's drums just push this whole thing forward in this really groovy way, while the harmony is at work and constantly shifting and going to all these interesting places. Okay, so here's the intro section, let's do it. F sharp, F sharp, B, A flat, E major 9, A flat sus, E flat minor 7. F-sharp, B, A-flat, B, E, E, A, E-flat, horns, E, E, A, E-flat, and B-flat minor 7. Carrying over to the verse.
2: Drive west on sunset to the sea.
0: Now, there are a lot of ways you could get from F-sharp major to B-flat minor 7. You could get there a lot faster, more efficiently, and less confusingly than that path that we just took. And even if you didn't follow everything that I just said, I hope you did follow that there's just a lot going on here. There's a lot of thought that's been put into this chord progression, and it's very playful. It's sort of moving in all these unexpected directions, and they're so patient. They're really taking their time. It's just groove for almost 45 seconds.
2: Drive west on sunset to the sea.
0: Turn so Fagin's vocals are in, we're into the first verse here, and that means that the groove is basically coming to its own. It's gonna develop and build a little bit over the course of the recording, but this is the main groove, which means that it's time to talk about the purdy shuffle. <laughs> It's no small thing for a drummer to have a specific drum groove named after them, but Bernard Purdy managed just such a feat with his Purdy Shuffle, which is a specific type of shuffle that he played that is really iconic and distinct to him and has been imitated and sort of carried on over the years because it was just such a great groove. He is the originator of it, and he gets to have his name on it, which is quite a feat of percussive branding. Like, there are other grooves that are associated with drummers. I'd say Gene Krupa's drum groove on Sing 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 with the swing with the Benny Goodman Orchestra is certainly associated with Gene Krupa. The drummer for the Meters, Zigaboo Modeleste his groove on "Sissy Strut" is another one that you'll hear all over the place and is certainly associated with him. Uh, yeah. And then if you're like a really in-the-know rhythm section player or you have an encyclopedic knowledge of funk or rock and roll history, you'll know which grooves originated from which players. But even those two grooves, those really iconic grooves, aren't named for the drummers that played them. The sissy strut groove is called the sissy strut groove. The sing-sing-sing with a swing groove is called that sing-sing-sing floor-tom thing. Like, they're not named for the drummers in the way that the Purdy shuffle is, which that alone makes me really respect Bernard Purdy, that he managed to get his name attached to his signature group group. That's Purdy playing his Purdy Shuffle on a different Steely Dan tune that's Home at Last from Asia three years before Gaucho, and those two tracks are kind of held up as two quintessential examples of the Purdy Shuffle. Now, Bernard Purdy was and remains an amazing studio drummer, a super influential musician, a guy who was kind of behind the scenes for a long time, unless you were a drummer and you were in the know, you know, you would hear him playing on Gaucho and think, oh man, who's this guy? This guy's great. But most people didn't know who he was over the years. He's kind of grown. His reputation has grown. The Purdy Shuffle is a really well-known beat that almost any drummer will tell you. Like, go on YouTube and look for how to play the Purdy Shuffle. You'll find a thousand videos because everybody wants to play that groove. It's this irresistible groove. Purdy is also kind of a character. He's always struck me as a really funny guy. He has a kind of a joyful energy to his playing that he brought to every record he was on. His nickname was Pretty, so he was Bernard Pretty Purdy. And it's really worth going through his discography. He played with so many different great artists, so many different styles, and he always brought just a nasty groove to every record. So this specific groove, the Purdy Shuffle, what is it? All right, well, I'm going to explain it to you. So you can think of this as the most specific type of groove. This is a groove that is named for one guy, and it's one certain type of groove, the Purdy shuffle. That is a subcategory of a shuffle, which itself is a subcategory of swing music, swing grooves, and swing is a subcategory of just general drum grooves. So I'm not going to spend too long on swing here. If you want to hear more about swing, there's episodes that come to mind you can listen to. There is a bonus episode I did in year two called Rhythm Plus Harmony Equals Music. I talk a lot about rhythm there and rhythmic subdivision, drum grooves, and also the episode from year two about Queens of the Stone Ages, No One Knows. I put that more in the context of 6-8 and 12-8 time signatures, but this is kind of a like 12-8 shuffle. You know, there's a lot of overlap between the two grooves. So I talk a lot about Dave Grohl's drumming on that record on that episode as well. So as longtime listeners will know, I kind of break grooves in to the thump, the pop, and the sizzle. Those are the three main ingredients of most grooves, though some grooves kind of get by by removing one of them and seeing how that sounds. You don't need them, but a lot of grooves have some element of thump, some element of pop, some element of sizzle. In this case, the thump is the kick drum, the pop is the snare drum, and the sizzle is the hi-hat. Those three are the most common uh, instruments used to provide those three elements of a groove, and that's what Bernard Purdy is mostly getting by on on Babylon Sisters. So zooming all the way out to a straight eighth, just funk or rock groove using the thump and pop and sizzle that kick snare drum and hi-hat this is a straight eighth just straight ahead rock feel this is what that groove feels like Alright, so let's go one layer down and turn that from a straight eighth funk feel into a swing funk feel. There's some element of swing in almost every kind of music that you listen to. And swing can mean a lot of different things for our purposes. I'm just going to say it means you take the second eighth note, move it a little bit later. So instead of this, you get swung eighths, which sound like this. All right, so there's always some element of the triplet in every swing, but a shuffle is swing that really emphasizes the triplet. And it's a kind of a finer distinction. You know, there can be some tunes that swing and kind of have a shuffly feel but aren't exactly a shuffle. It's not something that's super black and white, but a shuffle generally emphasizes the triplet a little bit more than other types of swing. So as I mentioned in the intro, a triplet is when you take three of a given note and smush it into the amount of time it usually takes to play two of those notes. So we're talking about eighth notes here. If you're just swinging eighth notes you get if you turn that into triplets you're going to get three in that same amount of time it'll sound like so if you add a few more notes of the thump the pop and the sizzle and really bring out that triplet feel you get more of a shuffle drum feel which can sound like this So each time we've just gotten a little bit more specific with the groove, we've started with a really basic straight eighth rock groove that's just kind of straight eighths on the hi-hat. Then we made it a little more specific by adding swing feel to it so that the hi-hat is kind of swinging. Then we made it even more specific by making it a shuffle, so really emphasizing the triplet in the swing that was already happening okay so let me put that in context for you we've been listening to a lot of isolated drums but drums don't play in isolation they're part of the rhythm section that's a really common just kind of boogie shuffle this is what that would sound like in the context of a band playing a really standard shuffle groove Actually, here's another example. Bernard Purdy wasn't the first drummer to play a shuffle with Steely Dan. In fact, their original drummer, Jim Hodder, played a pretty great shuffle feel on Reelin' in the Years.
2: You, so you, you, you
0: feel it? It's like a 1-2-3, 1-2-3, one, one 2 1-2-3, triple it, triple it, triple
2: it. It's
0: a good groove, though apparently not quite enough to get it named the Hodder Shuffle. Alright, so that brings us to the Purdy The Purdy Shuffle i you Now what makes the Purdy shuffle unique? It's partly his feel, it's the way that Bernard Purdy just had of feeling the drums, but it's also where he's choosing to place his emphasis and where he's kind of finding the groove. You can find the groove in a lot of different parts of the drum set, in different parts of the thump and the pop and the sizzle. He's really finding the groove, I think anyways, in the sizzle up on the hi-hat. It's kind of all about what he's playing on the hi-hat. So here's the kind of generic shuffle that I just put together... And here's my recreation of the Purdy Shuffle. So to break that into its component parts, we start with the kick drum. The kick drum is just kind of doing a heartbeat thing, so that's probably the simplest element of the Purdy Shuffle. The hi-hat is pretty simple too. The the hi-hat is where this groove lives and Purdy's control of his hi-hat is incredible. If you really sit and listen to all the different colors he gets out of the hi-hat, it's pretty amazing. So the basic hi-hat feel is just this kind of like that. That's just my approximation of it though And I'm using sample drums So I can't match the subtleties Of all the different ways That he plays the hi-hat Now the hi-hat are two cymbals You close and you control them With your left foot Sort of how open they are And he's hitting them so gently And then slightly opening the hi-hats A little bit at various times To just get this slightly more open sound Like here at the very beginning He's got it completely choked And he's getting really tight chicks On the hi-hat
2: Drive west on sunset To the sea
0: shankner's got it mixed and eq'd very clearly it's over on the right you can hear it and you can hear how he starts just slightly opening it up just a little bit as the verse proceeds just until- Do you hear it? So it gives it this sense of just a slight increase in intensity. It pushes it just a tiny bit more. There's so much subtlety in the way that he's playing, and in specifically the way that he's playing the hi hat. So by the time the backup vocals come in, it's even clearer. He's really opening it up sometimes then throughout the rest of the tune he uses that hi-hat to paint in these very subtle gradations he's using a really subtle color palette on that hi-hat and the hi-hat is just it's the heart of this whole thing he has so much control and is exerting so much of that on the hi-hat to make this groove so specific and so it's so cool (laughs) Drummer Rob Brown actually has a good tutorial of this on YouTube that I'll link in the show notes. And he points out that it's really just a basic swing feel. He calls this the splang-a-lang, which is a common thing drummers call it. And it's the pattern that you usually play on the ride cymbal when you're playing swing. Splang, splang, a-lang, splang, a-lang. And then as Rob Brown points out, you just take away the splang and just go a-lang, and then you just kind of chain that together. A-lang, 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 a-ding, 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 So it's basically a swing feel. Just transfer that over to the hi-hat, and you get what Bernard Purdy is doing uh, with his hi-hat feel. It's got that swing to it, and the swing is essential. So the last thing is the snare drum, and that's maybe the most distinct thing about the Purdy shuffle, and that's the ghost notes that he's playing. So these are called ghost notes when you're playing these little tiny hits on the snare drum in between the bigger hits that kind of give you that pop, that backbeat, there are these ghost notes mixed in there, which gives it a much busier feel than most drum grooves. I've actually been learning how to play the Purdy shuffle on drums, and the way to think of it is just that the ghost notes go in the space between the two hi-hat hits, which then creates a full triplet, and that's that triplet uh, that drives the shuffle in the first place. So with just the ghost notes and the hi-hat together, you just get this steady triplet rhythm that sounds like this. You hear that triplet? So just triplet, 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 Keep everything the same but just add a backbeat every so often on the snare drum where the snare drum is just played a little bit louder and you get this. Put that heartbeat kick drum in there and you've got a fully fledged purdy shuffle. Now this really is an iconic groove. You've heard this in a lot of different places. It's just this is where it originated and this is the player who originated it. The Purdy Shuffle has tons of permutations that have come up in the decades since Bernard Purdy first played it in the 1970s. Uh, One of the most famous ones is actually played by who else but Jeff Porcaro, who if you remember would go on to form Toto. And one of Toto's most famous songs features a clear and extremely grooving permutation of the Purdy Shuffle. You hear it? Yes, studio drummer and former Steely Dan band member Jeff Porcaro has said he combined Bernard Purdy's Purdy shuffle with a John Bonham groove to come up with the groove for Toto's Rosanna. So I mentioned that the Purdy Shuffle is pretty busy, and that's because of all those ghost notes. I mean, that's actually a pretty busy groove. A lot of drum grooves are much simpler than that, and they leave more space for the rest of the band. And that makes the Purdy Shuffle kind of a specific thing. Like, you're not going to use that on any shuffle. And while there are drummers who learn it, and then they're really excited that they can play a good Purdy Shuffle, and they start just playing it all over the place, it's actually like not going to be the most applicable groove for most songs. That's where the rest of this arrangement comes in. So let's look at that first verse and we can break down how it's all coming together to create such a distinct and killer groove that just slowly and steadily builds into that first backup vocalist explosion the first time they sing Babylon Sisters Shake It. So let's just listen, put your ears on, and see what you hear. Pay attention for the bass, pay attention for the keys and the guitar, the vocals. Of course, leave some space for Purdy's hi-hat over there on the right, the way that he's slowly opening it up a little bit more and adding some colors to the palette as the verse progresses, the way that it's all gelling together around that drum groove and slowly building. Here we go.
2: Drive west on sunset to the sea Turn that jungle music down just until we're out of town This is no one night stand It's a real occasion Close your eyes and you'll be there It's everything they say The end of a perfect day Distant lights from across the bay Babylons
0: Man, when people talk about how meticulous Steely Dan is, that's what they're talking about. I've heard this song a lot of times, but even just now listening to it uh, kind of along with the rest of you, it's just so meticulously put together and it works so well. So the theme here is that groove is about restraint and this arrangement, it's just all about giving that groove, Purdy's drum groove, the space that it needs to do all of that ghost noting and subdividing without getting in the way or creating too cluttered of a sound. The rest of the rhythm section outside of Purdy is largely defined by Don Grolnick's electric piano. He's basically just playing whole notes on the chords. He's just playing through the harmony of the song, playing whole notes. There's a nice kind of tremolo effect as it's moving the pan left to right, but he's not doing any busy subdividing on the electric piano Chuck Rainey is doing a little bit more work on the bass But he's pretty restrained too He's kind of just playing these steady little subtle figures That fit right in with what Purdy is playing But he's not playing too much It's It's a pretty straightforward bass part
2: Close your eyes and you'll be there It's everything
0: the last element of this groove is a crucial one It's a combination of Steve Kahn's guitar over on the left And Grolnick on the clavinet I think he's overdubbed here, he's over on the right They're playing the same thing and it's this kind of reggae groove In reggae it's called skanking When you're kind of just going And that's all they're doing They're playing this really delicate, light, kind of quiet thing Just bouncing on the two and the four
2: The end of a perfect day Distant lights from across
0: the, the resulting groove is super spacious which is perfect for what Bernard Purdy is playing because it gives him space to really work with all those ghost notes and all that subdividing he's doing. It also lets Fagan's melody really float up above the harmony and it's a pretty complicated melody moving through some pretty complex harmony but because there's so much space the whole thing just feels really luscious and relaxing. So you almost don't notice as it steadily builds an intensity toward the end of the verse setting up that killer first entrance of the backup vocalists on the chorus All right, so let's talk about the harmony. Let's talk about this backup vocalist. Let's talk about the horns and the fact that this song features bass clarinet. Not just one, but two bass clarinets so prominently. It sounds so cool on this tune. We'll get to it in a minute. But first, let's just talk a little more about the harmony and the harmony on that opening verse leading into the chorus. So as always, the melody and the harmony are inexorably intertwined. And Fagan's melodies are always really cool. Just they go in unexpected places. They're always developing and shifting in the same way that the harmony is. And Babylon Sisters makes for a good case study in the way that that works.
2: Drive west on sunset to the sea
0: so let's just look at that opening phrase. It starts in a B flat minor seventh. The melody kind of walks up that, then up to a C minor seventh, a two seven. Then it goes to an E flat nine, kind of sits there for a second, then it drops a whole step down to D flat major nine, it's got a major seventh, down to A flat 13, and then to a G flat major nine, so it's another major seventh chord. It results from there back to B flat minor seventh, and we're back to the start, but then they go through the chord progression differently. Here's the second part of the opening verse.
2: This is no one
0: Very different, right? It starts on that B-flat minor 7th, but it goes up to that G. One night stand on the C minor 7th this time. And then it keeps going up. It goes to a D minor 7th, and then to a B-flat major 7th, which is just completely different chords. Then it goes up to a C. And then it begins this really cool walk down that does a kind of sequential pattern walking down to arrive at the D minor, which is where the backup vocalists come in, where they sing the Babylon Sisters part. So, this final part is kind of a logical, sequential, very clever chord progression moving toward D minor.
2: It's everything they say, the end of a perfect day, distant lights from across the bay
0: it's just really cool stuff man it's super sophisticated it's very smart that final chord progression totally kills me it goes from this e flat over f to a b flat major seven to an e7 flat five down a half step to an e flat major nine to an A-altered chord, an A-sharp-five, sharp-nine chord, that they kind of really put the flat-nine and the sharp-nine in the melody. That is very, very jazz thing to do, and that resolves to D minor. What a cool chord progression.
2: It's
0: not just that it's a hip chord progression, it's the way that it sets up this vocal entrance. The vocal ensemble on Babylon Sisters is made up of a collection of studio pros. Diva Gray, Gordon Grody, Lanny Groves, Leslie Miller, Tony Wine, and Patty Austin. A heck of a vocal ensemble, and they really brought it on this track.
1: Babylon sister,
3: shake
0: it. There's so much going on just in the delivery of that line, Babylon Sisters, Shake It. It's phrased and arranged in this incredible way where they hit the note, Babylon Sisters There's kind of a crescendo, they hold it And then there's just this whip crack Where the whole band hits that shake it together I mean, there's a lot of precision on this And that hit, it kind of makes the case For the precision of this recording It's so carefully put together And that's the only way that it can hit Like this targeted laser strike After that surgical buildup.
1: Babylon Sisters
0: the horn section is in there as well. They're mixed below the vocals and they came in a little bit earlier. It's also a killer horn section. It features Tom Scott on alto and tenor sax and on clarinet. Tom Scott is a great player who was in a ton of horn sections throughout the 70s and 80s. Walter Kane and George Marge are both playing bass clarinet. I mentioned earlier how much I love the bass clarinet on this. And Randy Brecker is playing trumpet. Randy Brecker, a well-known jazz trumpet player, his brother Michael Brecker, one of the greatest tenor saxophone players who ever lived. They had the band the Brecker Brothers. I've talked about bought both of them in the past and randy brecker gets some stuff to do on this track Actually, Michael is on Gaucho, he's just not on Babylon Sisters. So everybody is in at this point, and this chorus again kind of disguises unusual harmony under how hard it's grooving. It's a killer groove. They deliver it so tightly together, but it's kind of odd harmony. It's not the resolution you would expect for this moment of coming together where everybody finally comes in for this, this big statement. It's actually still kind of weird harmony.
1: Babylon Sisters
0: It's going back and forth between two chords. There's a D minor here. Then it goes up a half step to E flat. So that big hip chord progression that I was talking about was this long and kind of winding descent, sequencing a melody down to arrive at a D minor that then kind of carries through the phrase into the beginning of the next phrase where they sing Babylon Sisters in D minor. And then that resolves up a half step to E flat it's very peculiar it's so liquid and flowing it never really arrives anywhere even at this chorus even when these vocals come in it's still moving from D minor then up a half step to this kind of E flat sharp four thing it's unusual it just keeps doing that so the phrase repeats after that goes back to D minor they sing it again Babylon sisters shake it up to that E flat sharp four again We're kind of floating up on that E-flat, and then comes the second half of the phrase, which does feel like it builds towards a nice resolution as they sing Tell Me I'm the Only One. let's talk about the backup vocal ensemble and the horn section those are the two subsections of this band and they're both staffed with such pros i mean each individual backup singer each individual horn player is a great artist in their own right and that kind of brings me back to another element of this song's restraint check out the way the backup vocals sound on this line tell me i'm the only one they split into harmony and it's so beautifully executed I'm not sure who's singing each part, but you've got two vocal parts in total unison, singing that main melody, starting on the major seventh, it sounds like this. Tell me I'm the only one. But what makes it sing, so to speak, is the harmony part, which is so cool. It starts out up a third on a C, then it moves in a higher harmony and actually keeps moving after the other line stays still. When you put them together, it sounds like this. You only get that kind of beautiful precision if you hire really good singers. And like I said, each of these singers is an incredible singer in his or her own right. Same thing goes for the horns. The horns now pick up this line and come in with a unison note. They're just playing one note together, but they play it perfectly in tune. It has a flawless crescendo that builds as an ensemble into one more stinger on that shake it, just an instrumental version. And then the bass clarinets play it out. That's what you get when you get musicians that good, and you ask them to just play perfectly, but with restraint. There's so much music in there if you really listen, and each individual musician is doing so much to contribute to the recording, even though it's very subtle and very restrained. So let's listen one time through to that entire section. As the vocals sing Tell Me I'm the Only One, they split into those harmonies, that beautiful higher harmony part moves in parallel and then keeps moving for one note while the main melody stays put, and then the horns seamlessly pick up for the vocalists into that beautiful perfect crescendo into that hit, which is then carried on by the bass clarinets. just keeps going from there, this whole chorus is this endless cascade of new harmonic and melodic ideas. It's really cool once you really start drilling down and listening to it. The harmony is pretty complicated, I won't go through every chord, but here at the end there's this super angular turnaround. It like briefly becomes a jazz theory textbook. B over E, F sharp over E, then this like D flat, A flat, B flat 7 altered to E flat minor 7. really complex. I mean, these are nerds showing off all the chords that they know, but they're doing it in a really cool way that sets up all these new sections that, with the vocals on top and that groove on the bottom, it kind of softens how sort of angular and thorny and hip all this harmony is by making it groove and making it sound so nice when they're singing here come those santa Ana winds again i mean that's a pretty dope chord progression that's going on in the background but it just sounds like nice sweet vocals happening on top I love that keyboard turnaround. That's Squirrelnik on the electric piano. there, voice leading his way through this very cool chord progression that only happens at this point in the song after the first chorus before they repeat back to do the verse all over again. He plays through this nice chord progression that's just variations on E flat. Like each of these chords is a type of an E flat chord. And then often just one note inside the chord will change. And it creates a nice, cool, kind of smooth sense of motion as he moves through it. It's a really nice way to turn things back around for the second verse. It kind of goes from minor 7, minor 7 flat 5, that goes to a minor major 7, then it kind of goes to this sus chord at the end. It's just nice because it's all E flat, but the interior voices are moving in a very tasty way. Sounds pretty cool, right? Listen to the recording again. And just pay attention for that. Try to hear those interior notes, how they're moving in half steps as the chords just slightly change quality every two beats.
2: from a shell St. Frank
0: Love those smooth sounds from Randy Brecker over on the trumpet. He's playing a muted trumpet there. I believe that he's playing with what's called a pixie mute combined with a plunger mute. The pixie mute is a little mute that goes into the bell of the horn and gives it that buzzy sound, and then the plunger is a looks like a toilet plunger. You hold it over the bell and you get that kind of wah 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 sound. He's moving the plunger in front of the bell of the trumpet, and it's a pretty classic, fairly schmaltzy sound, but I think that Randy gets it done.
2: From a ship. Sand friend! This is to show it.
0: You may have noticed that I haven't mentioned the lyrics to this song, and that's because that's kind of a whole other podcast. Steely Dan lyrics are a literary world unto themselves. They're a very literary band, and I mean that not in a way of just puffing them up to make them sound sophisticated, but they write in their own vernacular. They're very keen on coming up with their own little turns of phrase. Even here, San Francisco, show and tell. You'll hear these things that sound like aphorisms, but they've actually just been invented for the song. It adds to this feeling that all Steely Dan songs take place in this sort of parallel universe, and they're always about characters. It's never clear whether the speaking protagonist is actually Fagin or Becker, or a literary character that they've come up with, and a lot of times, it's sort of a mix of the two. There's a layer of irony draped over everything, and the protagonist will also kind of self-own, or like, tell on themselves with the lyrics, and that's because a lot of the protagonists of these songs, they're kind of scuzzballs, for lack of a better word. There's a kind of scuzziness underneath all the pristine audio production and the beautiful harmonies, there's this dirty quality to a lot of the worlds that Steely Dan characters inhabit. That's certainly true of Babylon Sisters. It's kind of the story of a guy from the East Coast going on this hedonistic tour of the West Coast and feeling out of place and just sort of lost and like his life has become meaningless. But there are probably a lot of other equally valid interpretations of this song, and that's kind of why I'm not getting too much into the lyrics of this, because there's so much music here that I'm just going to focus on that, even though there is a lot of stuff to talk about when it comes to Seelie Dan lyrics.
2: We'll jog with show folk on the sail Drink a shvasa from a shell San Francisco show and deal
0: The second verse is following the same chords as the first verse, but the arrangement has become significantly more elaborate. Underneath it all, of course, Bernard Purdy is just mixing it up a little bit more. He's adding a little more color on that hi hat. The horns are also in. This horn arrangement has kind of taken form and is accompanying Fagan's lead vocals throughout this second verse. It's a nice, actually very woodwindy arrangement. It's mostly saxophones on this, just with Brecker there on top. Uh, you can also hear Steve Kahn's guitar getting a little more, you know, getting a little more busy, adding a couple of little figures over there on the left. But it's all very restrained.
2: That I'm not what I used to be. And that not and
0: then it's time to do the chorus again.
2: Battle,
0: from there the next section plays out pretty similarly until they get to the Santa Ana Winds part where they set up a new solo section for Randy Brecker. Man, this album is so well mixed. I gotta give it up to Elliot Shiner. I mean, that guy is amazing. Mixing an album is tough. If you've ever made music and tried to mix it and make it sound really good, it's a real art form. And Elliot Shiner, I mean, he also worked on Asia, which I think the mix on that album is really incredible. It's a little bit less crystal clear compared to gaucho but that's fine i actually think that asia has a really great character to it but man to get something sounding this good this solo section the way the saxophones are arranged in the mix the way that you can hear purdy's ride cymbal he's gone up onto the ride cymbal and is really playing a pretty steady swing thing during this section it just opens up in this lush lovely way So there's a gentleness to this tune, and the complexity and relative intensity of this third verse kind of lays that out. The whole thing is operating within a pretty restrained dynamic frequency, except when the vocals are coming in and things are really kind of popping. But during these verses, they're not all super different from one another, but they are all different in a way that just feels like a steadily building kind of ember that just burns a little more hotly with each repetition. It's in the drums, it's in the horn arrangement, it's just in the way that everything is being performed. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to stitch together the three verses. We're going to start in the first verse, then segue to the second, where things are just so much more intense, and Randy's kind of over there on the trumpet, and then we'll segue into the third, where things have picked up a bit. You wouldn't notice it listening to any of them in isolation, but when you hear them back to back, you'll just hear how Purdy's drums have gotten a little bit more busy, his hi-hat has gotten a little more exciting, and of course the horns have come in, and the whole thing has just picked up a tiny bit in intensity. It's subtle, but once you notice it, it's very cool all right ears on here we go first verse
2: drive west on sunset to the
0: sea. to the second
2: Drink a water from a shell san francisco show entry
0: to the third
2: say no,
0: don't go for that
2: candy
0: Pretty cool right
2: sun yo the kid will live and learn as he watches his
0: bridges. Purdy's drumming is at its busiest as they set up the final chorus. And with that, they go into the outro vamp. Love that horn figure, super triplet really just leaning into that triplet shuffle feel. Steve Khan also finally has more to do on the guitar over on the left. You can hear him doubling that line as they go up, and he's just adding another flavor that increases the intensity just ever so slightly on this outro. This outro vamp also does something cool. Normally, you know, we've been going from that D minor up a half step to E flat minor. Every time they do the shake it, it's on that E flat minor. But in the outro, every other time, they actually go up to an F instead, which has a pretty different sound, even though it's kind of the same notes, and it creates another new wrinkle on the harmony of the song. The song's harmony is always at work. Like I said, this part is no exception, and that F minor is a really cool new wrinkle that they add. So here they're in D minor, and they go up a half step to E flat, and back to D, and then they go up to F. (laughs) Alright. With all of that established, it's time for the backup vocalists to do their thing. Talk about saving the best for last. I feel like so many people that listen to the song probably wait just for that backup vocal moment because it's so friggin' good. It's like a grouping of seven tuplets in the eighth note triplet. If you count the phrase, you got to shake it, baby, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So you got to shake it, baby, you got to shake it, baby, you got to shake it. You can kind of count it that way if you want, but really, you just got to feel this one. You got
3: to shake it, baby, you got to shake it.
0: Bernard Purdy's hi-hat is just singing nice and open and the band just totally cooks as they fade out. Restraint isn't always the first thing people think of when they think of groove. They may think of energy or pulse or the image of a beating heart. But restraint is the key to any great groove, and the space between the notes is just as important as the notes themselves. Despite their reputation as a musically indulgent band, over the course of the 70s, Steely Dan became the masters of restraint. Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and the many studio musicians and audio professionals they worked with perfected a sort of precise, restrained pulse that peaked with Babylon Sisters. It's a simple recipe, really. Just take a pinch of that purdy shuffle layer on an oh-so-restrained rhythm section, and then, well... I'll do it for my analysis of steely dan's babylon sisters a perhaps lesser known steely dan song but one that i hope i helped you gain a new appreciation for thanks as always to all of my patrons I actually recently made a patreon q a video just for my patrons over there that was really fun i'm going to be doing more behind the scenes stuff like that this year so if you want to check that out and support me making this show go to patreon.com slash strong songs speaking of q a's the next episode will be our first q a episode of year three so send me your questions at listeners at strong songs podcast com. I've been hearing from a bunch of you recently who have picked up instruments thanks to this show and have gotten back into music when you've maybe let it lie for a few years, and that really means a lot. That's super cool to hear. If that might be you and you play an instrument that you maybe haven't played in a little while, but Strong Songs has got you thinking, hmm, you know, it might be cool to, to pick up my old flute or my old trombone, uh, go for it. I say go for it. Pick that instrument up and make some sound on it. You might be surprised how much you like what you hear. Social media, newsletter, and all that jazz is down in the show notes, along with a link to the Strong Songs store with some merch you should check out. And stick around for Kyle Molitor, who lent his trombone chops to the new Strong Songs theme music and also played a killer outro solo, so stick around for Kyle, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Strong Songs.